pastors and I was meditating on this text and it's amazing how the Lord brings you to texts and circumstances and weaves those things together, right? And it was, it was sort of striking in my mind that even though this passage is very difficult to interpret and apply, someone like Rosemary is laying there in bed and she's not really concerned about the interpretation at that point. The primary concern for her is what do I need to do to obey this text? What, what do I need to do now? I'm, I'm desperate. I need help. I need comfort. I need assurance. I need my faith to be um, bolstered. I need to be buoyed up. I need to be buttressed. I, I, I want to know what to do. I, I would prefer to be healed in this life. And I, I just want to be faithful to the text. And so the priority of this text kind of screamed at me. And that is, we just need to obey the text and leave the results up to the Lord. And so there's a lot of debate about what the text means, but the first thing is obedience, obeying the Lord. And so that's what we do. That's what living faith does. That's the point of the epistle of James. We're kind of winding down with three more sermons to go. And the point of this book of the Bible is what does it look like to be alive spiritually? And so that's the soul of even a command like this. This is not a formula that guarantees an outcome that we can predict as much as an expression of what it looks like to call for help because you're alive spiritually and you're calling for people who are leaders in the church who are alive spiritually and you want to express living faith in a desperate situation. That's the soul of this text. If you look at verse 16, just to skip one verse ahead, I found sort of tracks to run on as we look at this remaining section in James 5. It's one track with two rails. What do you do when your life is desperate, when you're on perhaps your deathbed situation? What do you do? Well, two things. And you'll see these two things pop up through the rest of the verses here. One, you pray. You pray. Look at James 5.16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. You pray. And second, you confess your sins. You confess sin. You're squeezed. You could be at the end and you want to be right with God. You want to leave everything on the table and you want to be right with other people. So as appropriate, in appropriate venues, you're confessing sin in this kind of extreme, dire situation. And that's what we see here in the text. That's what we'll find here. Two ways that weakened believers are made strong. Well, one, energized prayers. And two, transparent confessions. Two things are going on in the heart during this moment. And sometimes these confessions are beautiful. They're not all negative confessions. It's just transparency all over the place. Because there's, there's no reason not to be. You're just wide open. And you're praying and you're energized in your prayer life. That's what's going on. Well, we begin the section in verse 13. This, this is where James is sort of opening the church up with two very general questions. Two ways to sort of um, capture all of life in a believer's life with two questions. Is anyone among you suffering? And then, second question, is anyone cheerful? Well, first of all, if if you're suffering, what do you do? This might sound selfish at first, but just follow along. 
He says, let him pray. So if you're suffering, which we know this church was, it was part of the diaspora, spread around, it was poor, it was hurting, it was being oppressed, perhaps extorted out of money, early church persecution is going on. What are you supposed to do? Pray for yourself. We have permission to do that. Pray for ourselves. Say, Lord, help me. I'm struggling. The word suffering here is a general term. It's general suffering. He's not yet talking about physical sickness. He's just saying, if you're anxious, you're depressed, you're ripped apart, you feel the pressure of life, pray about it. Category number one. Category number two. In verse 13, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Note, both of these responses are vertical responses. In all of life, on the two poles, the two extreme sides, whether you're suffering or whether you're cheerful, it's all pointing up. That's what James is saying. Open yourself up to God. Now, what does it mean to be cheerful and a command to sing? If you're cheerful, won't you just automatically sing? Well, if you're spirit-filled, you will. If you ever want to know whether you're filled with the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 5.18 says, Don't be drunk with, with wine, which really means being intoxicated with worldliness. Don't be intoxicated with worldly living, but be filled in the Holy Spirit. If you ever want to know if you're filled in the Holy Spirit, just ask yourself, Am I someone who spontaneously sings praises to God? Because what's in you will come out. Because... Ephesians 5, 18 and the verses that follow say that believers who are spirit-filled will sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs. And guess what? They'll sing and make melody in their hearts to God. And so if you have this new song melody in your heart, you look at a command like this and say, yeah, when I'm cheerful, it's all because of God and I'm going to give it back to him. So that's James. He's sort of trying to capture the attention of the congregation in general. And then he targets a specific need. And that is where someone, whether by persecution, whether they were beat up or whether they are suffering from cancer or something that's taking their life. If you're sick in a very specific way, you need to call the elders of the church to come pray for you. It's kind of our first theme of this section. Verse 14, it's a third question here. Is anyone among you sick? What, is, what does he mean sick here? How grave is the situation? The word sick in verse 14 is a word that could be applied to people who are just exhausted or who are undergoing extreme fatigue. It's been applied that way. But when you take the sick word in verse 14 and marry it up with verse 15 and how James uses that word for sickness, he's talking about physical sickness. And sickness, that's to the point of death. Because verse 14, where he says, is anyone among you sick, is really in the context of verse 15, where it says, God will save the one who is sick. That's a different word in verse 15. That's the word camnon. And that word means sick like you're dying. You are terminally ill. It's a word that was used generically about in the Greek culture for documents that were threadbare documents, documents that were withering away. This is a very physical text. It's talking about physical ailment. And even the use of oil here is talking about something that is applied to a person physically and literally. It's talking about a person who's sick. It's talking about a person who is incapacitated. They're, they're in their hole, okay? They're, they're on their bed, 
They can't get up and go to the pastors or elders in this scenario. They're saying, elders, pastor, I need you to come to me. I need, I need help. I, I can't get to you. I'm, I'm sending word out. Come, please help me. Like where, where the centurion said to Jesus, can you go to my son and help him? Or the parents, I've got, there's a little girl back here and she, she's died. She's our little girl. Or, or had you been here earlier, Lazarus, he, he'd be alive, but he's dead. I, I need your help. That's the dire circumstance we're talking about here. I'm on my bed and I'm calling for the shepherds of the church to come around me and help me. That's what this is talking about. Some people interpret this um, more in terms of a, you know, an emotional exhaustion so they can say, okay, well, that person, they'll be prayed for and raised up. But it's really more than that. It really is more than that. It's not a, a casual office visit. I think we, you know, at the church, we welcome those office visits. We want to pray for you. We want to lay hands on you. We want to seek your physical healing. But this is a dire, desperate text. And I just want to paint it for what it is. And to frame it up in that way. It's a real physical sense. Well, who's this person calling? This person is calling for the elders to come. I just want to talk for a minute about what it means to be an elder in this situation. This person isn't calling just elders out there in general. This is a person that's calling the elders from his or her local church. This is a person that knows the shepherds to call. The ones that know him or her personally where you're inviting people that you respect spiritually to come and do ministry over you. It's where you're becoming very vulnerable to men who are godly spiritual leaders in the church. It's the type of situation where if you have a loved one that's sick in the hospital and they're that sick, if the pastor or the elders aren't showing up, it's awkward. It's a problem because you have that expectation because these are the shepherds of the church. The word elder is... The word presbyteros, it's where we get the word for the Presbyterian denomination. It means older or a person who is spiritually mature. There's another term that's used for the exact same role, the exact same office, and that is episkopos, which means overseer. It's the idea that a person is looking over people's lives. They're spiritually mature and they look over and watch over people's souls. Third term that's used for the same office, the same role, is the word poimen, which means shepherd. It's also the word pastor. It's people who are pastoring the flock, loving the flock, spiritually mature, and overseeing the souls of the flock. It's one office. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 says, If anyone desires the office of of an overseer, it is a good thing. That's the word episkopos. Titus 1 verse 5 talks about how an elder is blameless and then it lists the same qualifications that 1 Timothy 3 lists, which means it's the same office. If you look at 1 Peter, you might turn over there, 1 Peter 5, 1 and 2. Peter uses all three words, elder, overseer, and shepherd or pastor in one set of verses to talk about one office. He says, so I exhort the elders, 1 Peter 5, 
1, I exhort the elders among you as fellow as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. So he's talking about elders, a plurality of leaders in the church. And he says, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, verse 2. Here, he's using a verbal here. But he says, shepherd or pastor the flock of God that is among you. Exercising oversight or overseeing. So you have those three words in two verses talking about one person. One kind of leader. These are the leaders of the church. You say, well, what's the difference between an elder or an overseer or a pastor? Well, what's, what's the difference between a pastor and an elder? Well, it's really one office. It's really one individual. A, a pastor is someone who is elder qualified, who functions as an elder or as an overseer. An elder functions as a pastor in his gift mix. It's really one person, one office. Now, you do have a distinction in 1 Timothy 5.17 how some men are set apart. It says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the preaching and teaching. So there is a designation for some who are set apart to be here feet on the ground at the church, ministering day in and day out. They're not bivocational, but they're set apart for the ministry of the word of God and the administration of the church. That's a pastor. But a pastor is also an elder, and an elder is also, on a heart level, a pastor, and a functional level, a pastor. These are the kind of men that we call out for when we're in a dire, desperate situation. You say, I need help spiritually. This is to be, you know, distinguished from 1 Corinthians 12, 9, and 28. Um, This isn't a call for people with the gifts of healing. I believe the gifts of healing were prominent in the early church according to 1 Corinthians 12. We know that's the case from the Gospels, from the healing ministry of Jesus and the disciples, the 70 that were sent out, the apostles. You have Peter and, and you know, different apostles, Paul, who would lay hands on people and you would see immediate instantaneous healing. And then in the early church, it's easy to infer that men and women would have this gift of healing upon them and it was to affirm the the spirituality, the spiritual dignity, and the the presence of the Holy Spirit in the early church. And I think and believe that people are healed today. Perhaps people aren't designated as people with a healing ministry, but supernatural healing happens today. It does. God intervenes in miraculous ways that are inexplicable apart from divine intervention. I believe also the Lord uses medicine that's made you know, through people made in the image of God. So you have the wisdom of God being applied through medicine and the ingenuity and complexities that, that men and women and scientists and doctors and nurses and technicians are able to put together to, to provide situations and environments for healing is amazing. And that's part of the Lord's divine providence and providing healing for people. So I believe God heals, but this is specifically talking about the elders coming. And I want to make no mistake about that. Well, what are the elders supposed to do? What's supposed to happen when they show up? Look at verse 14. It says, let him call the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Two things, you're praying and you're anointing. 
That's what's going on. If you're an elder in that situation or if you're being ministered to, you're being prayed for collectively, a group, and you're being anointed with oil. The significance here is that this is an exercise of faith. This is not what I um, see as a sacrament like the Roman Catholic Church would where it's conferring anything. It's actually it's an exercise of faith where you are showing to this person what living faith looks like and you're seeking God's intervention and his will in the life of a person. Hopefully is that faith, faith is exercised by the group, the person in the bed is being buoyed up and strengthened in his or her faith as she prays or he prays along with them. I think it's clearly implied that the person who's being, having hands laid on or being prayed over, that that person is exercising that same living faith. Now what's going on with the anointing? The word oil here is the same word that's used in the Greek version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. The um, Old Testament was written originally in Hebrew, but later on in the church it was rewritten and translated into Greek. That same Greek word is used in 1 Samuel 16 for where Samuel came with a horn of oil to David to designate him from the family of Jesse as the last most least likely candidate to be king. You know, sort of went through, you know, one, two, three, four, the different sons. And then, all right, are we all out, you know? And God convicts Samuel. Man looks on the outside, but the Lord looks at the heart. Oh, wait, there's a shepherd boy. He's kind of puny or whatever, smallish. And well, we'll bring him in. He can't be king. And he was the one who was to be king. Well, what Samuel did, as soon as he knew that this young man was to be king, is he broke open that horn of oil and dumped it all over him. It's the same word. It's the symbol there in 1 Samuel 16, and I think it carries forward here in James 5 as a symbol of consecration. What I mean by that is separation. So as the elders are coming, in other words, and they're praying over someone and anointing that person, they're putting the oil on there to symbolize that person's sonship. It's a symbol that that person is set apart to the Lord. Because look at the text, it says... You're anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. It's a very solemn, significant statement to say, you're sick. You might be healed in this life and you might be healed in eternity at the resurrection, but you are God's. It's a symbol of affirmation. Just like King David. King David was this little shepherd boy and he didn't become officially king until years and years later. But he was anointed. He was separated and affirmed that he was to be king. And you know what? Every believer who expresses living faith in this life has the assurance. They are sealed by the Holy Spirit that they are going to rule and reign with Christ as a co-equal heir for all of eternity. And so as the elders come, this is an opportunity to exercise faith and buoy up the faith of the person that lays there sick, but to affirm that child of God that they are set apart in this prayer time for healing that could happen now, but healing that will for sure happen at the resurrection in heaven. That's what's going on. Some people take this to be a medicinal use of oil, kind of like the Good Samaritan scenario where... 
That person was beat up and wounded on the side of the road and the Good Samaritan poured oil in the wounds medicinally. But I don't, I don't see that in the text. I don't think that's what the role is of these shepherds. They're coming to deal with a person's heart and to strengthen that person's heart in a dire situation. What, is, what do I mean by all this? I mean, how, how does this work out in the, in the storyline of, of the Gospels, for instance? Well, you remember Jesus and his healing ministry? Every time that Jesus healed, what was Jesus' first priority? The faith of the individual. He was always looking to the hearts of the individual that he was going to heal or the hearts of the people. When he would do miracles, when he would, you know, create food for 5,000 people, his chief concern is that they would be hungry for him as God. Because he knows that life is a vapor, it appears for a little while and vanishes away. It's just a blip and all of eternity is really what matters most of all. And so the first priority of Jesus when he would heal people is that people would know that Jesus was God. I think that's why at times he would say, I healed you. Don't go tell people because I'm not the candy man that's coming to town to either feed you or heal you. I'm the Messiah. And so when Jesus would would heal. He was not just healing to meet the need in the moment. He was trying to show to an unbelieving world that they need to believe that Jesus is God. And when you're on your deathbed and you're hurting and you're calling for the elders around you, your first concern should be eternity with Christ. In Mark chapter 2, you had four friends who were friends of a paralytic. You remember the story? You might turn over there to Mark chapter 2. And there was this sort of jammed house scenario where they couldn't get the paralytic, their friend, in to see Jesus, but they wanted him to be healed. And so they got creative. They said, well, let's just kind of ramp up the pallet up to the top of the flat roof and, and sort of figure out how to lower him down in front of Jesus and How are we going to do that? And some guys start kicking the roof tiles around and digging around. Okay, we can open the roof up. And they lower Jesus, I mean, lower the paralytic right at the feet of Jesus. What's amazing to me is how Jesus looked at the faith of the friends first. Look at Mark 2, verse 5. It says, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. I think what's implied in this is that the paralytic was also a believer because we're saved by grace through faith, right? I mean, that's the testimony of Scripture. But what was important to Jesus is that when Jesus was ministering to this man, that people knew that it was God who was forgiving this man's sin. And that the number one need this man had was not the need for him to walk again or walk, maybe for the first time. It was for his sins to be forgiven. That's the priority. Anytime you have a healing that's going on, Jesus wants to display two things. That he's God and that the ultimate soul healing, a person having their sins washed away, is what matters most. When Jesus healed people, for instance, it was kind of a window into heaven. You know, the disciples, it says in Mark chapter 6, they cast demons out and they anointed people with oil and they prayed for people to be healed. Jesus healed people. 
The apostles in the book of Acts were healing people. But what was that? You know what that was? That was an early church expression of a window into heaven. Whenever Christ was healing people or casting demons out or raising a little girl from the dead or calling Lazarus forth from the grave, you know what he was doing? He was giving you a preview of what heaven is like at the resurrection. When he said, Lazarus, come forth, Lazarus was dead, and we know he was dead because the King James Version emphasizes that, that he stinketh, right? He was dead, and people were sad. Lazarus' sister was sad in that moment. Had you been here earlier, my brother would be alive. She was upset. Jesus was upset about that. But Jesus' number one priority was, after he said, Lazarus, come forth, was to display himself as The resurrection and the life. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. That was the point of the healing. It's that Jesus is God. He's the Lord over sickness. And in heaven, guess what? At the resurrection, there'll be no more dying, no more crying, no more sickness, and no more death, and no more demons. I know I said death twice in a sort of weird way, but all that to say, all that's gone in heaven. And so when you have miracles that happen in this life, and if somebody is miraculously, comprehensively healed in front of your eyes, you know what that is? That's a window into heaven. And that should immediately make us go, praise God for who he is and for where I'm going and where this person's going. But if a person isn't healed in this life, we need to encourage that person to put their eyes on Jesus where they will find the ultimate healing at the resurrection forever. And I think that's the guts behind this text in James chapter 5. You know, sickness, it's a symptom of man's greatest problem. Sin. Right? Disease, sickness, all that is a product of the fall, right? It's a horrible thing to watch people hurt and suffer and atrophy But it's an effect of the fall and it's an effect of sin in the world. But it's a symptom. It points out to us our greatest need, which is being right with God through the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. Healing, on the other hand, is a symbol of man's greatest need. It's a symbol of man's greatest need, which is salvation. Salvation. Man's greatest need is salvation it is Isaiah 53 5 it gets to the point Isaiah says but he prophesying of prophesying of Christ he was wounded for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace watch this and with his stripes we are healed guess what When that cat of nine tails opened up Jesus' back and those stripes were created, that first and foremost was not for your physical healing. God can choose to do that because he can do anything according to his will, 1 John chapter 5. But Jesus' stripes were for our spiritual healing that's in the future. That's guaranteed for us. We will have physical healing, either here or promised in the future, by Jesus' stripes. 
1 John 5.14, it does say if, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know his will is his will. I mean, Jesus, he, he was seeking the Lord's will at the Garden of Gethsemane and was seeing if the cup of wrath could be passed from him, but he submitted to God's will. It's important for us to know that James 5 is not giving us some magic formula where we say, okay, now we know it's God's will that a person will be physically healed, healed in this life. We don't know that. Paul as well in, in first, 2 Corinthians chapter 12 said, regarding his thorn in the flesh, your grace is sufficient, your power is perfected through weakness. And we need to remember that God uses suffering in his sovereign plan to make us more like Jesus. That's the point of James 1, 1 and 2. That's why we can consider it joy when we go through crushing pressure in life because he's conforming us through this marathon race all the way to the end to be like Jesus and receive the crown of life. But sometimes... God does intervene and heals us, nevertheless, and sometimes he gives us the grace to endure through it. You know, thinking of Rosemary and how she's sort of having light in her eyes for Jesus as she goes through chemotherapy. She has said it again and again and again that the principle of scripture that is most comforting to her is that God will not put more on her than he puts in her to bear it up. And I'm learning more from her suffering than perhaps any Bible study or seminary class or sermon that I've heard in a long time, maybe ever. Because you watch a person's faith as they endure through the storm. And our faith is energized as we seek the Lord for miracle healing. That's sort of how it works in the kingdom of God. Well, back to James 5. James 5, this is, I think, future language. Look at verse 15. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. This is a promise. This is the healing promise. And some people get tripped up and they say, well, the prayer of faith. What what is the prayer of faith? Did the prayer of faith happen this time or did it happen that time? Or was there enough faith or not enough faith? When is it going to work for me? You know, what what was the right chemistry or formula? And I think that is really discouraging to think that way. That it works sometimes, it uploads sometimes and does in other times. No, this is just talking about elders exercising faith, praying by faith. It's the point of the book of James. Faith without works is dead. Are you dead or alive? It's living faith. You have a faith that endures through trials. You have a faith that doesn't ignore the poor. You have a faith that... that meets the needs of the poor. You've got a faith that is concerned about your speech. We've talked about that through this book. You have a, a faith that wants to deal with the world, the flesh, and the devil. You have a faith that's alive, a faith that can put up with being extorted by oppressive people in your life. That's living faith. And so this kind of prayer of faith is in that context. Faith, faith-filled praying affirms a person on their deathbed that they're the real thing. They're going, oh, I am encouraged by these men praying for me and I might be healed, but I might have to wait until I get to be with Jesus and that's when I'll be healed. But I know my faith is alive and I know I'm saved. It's future language. Will save the one who is sick. When? Well, for sure in eternity. You're healed and you're also redeemed. It says the Lord will raise him up. That's eschatological language. That's 
future language. That's resurrection language. That's Lazarus come forth language. You know, Lazarus, he was sort of resuscitated, wasn't he? He he was raised up. He was dead and he was raised up, but he was going to die again. But this is talking about the promise of when we die, we're never going to die again. Is that powerful to you? That's what matters in your heart when you're faced with your own mortality. That's the kind of soul searching you begin to do where you're thinking, okay, I know that I'm at a crossroads right now and I could be called home and I want to make sure that I'm raised up with Christ. That's what matters most. And you're praying for that kind of assurance and affirmation and energized praying with elders as you call for them. And you're also praying for divine healing. Let's shift gears a, a little bit. And this will lead us into um, next time. What if there's unconfessed sin in your life and you're laying on the bed seeking healing? What if you kind of call the elders in, you want them to pray for you, and they're laying hands on you and they've anointed you with oil and they're praying over you and caring for you and you realize, you know, there's something wrong in my heart. And perhaps you begin to conclude personally that the reason that you're sick is you are being chastised by the Lord. James brings this up. He sort of brings it up subtly, but it's there. And in the context, in the following verses, it really becomes clear that this is on James' mind. It's where he's going. And we're going to sort of unpack this next week with the story of Elijah and how he prayed for a nation that was bound up in idolatry. And the rain stopped... And then he prayed again, and the rain came, and it was because that nation repented. Well, if you look at verse 15, it says, And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, please hear me up front to say, just as I preached Job a few weeks ago, I do not believe that we can automatically assume or should we ever automatically assume that someone is sick or terminally sick because of a sin in their life. We can't know that. We can ask the question, though. We can say as shepherds around a person or as caring friends, you know, is everything okay in your life spiritually? We can ask that question, but we don't want to assume that there's something wrong. But if that person is sitting there, remember the two rails of the, tr- of the track that James put out in front of us, we're praying and we're confessing sin. That person sitting there may say in their own life, I'm being squeezed and I believe the Lord is bringing this sin or this sin pattern to my attention and I need to come out with it. That would be a very natural thing, wouldn't it? That's what the text says. If he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. In other words, there's... Two promises here. You're going to be made whole in heaven and you are going to be forgiven. In other words, your faith is real and affirmed in this deathbed moment and your sins are forgiven. It's the same word as 1 John 1, 9. It's afe. They're they're moved away from you. You're forgiven. Transparent confessions. The first thing that happens in our life are energized prayers through this kind of suffering. And second is transparent confessions. You openly confess your sins. John 9. Again, we don't want to assume people are in sin. Remember John 9, 1, where the disciples were walking by the blind man and they said, you know, who 
who sinned, this man or his parents that made him blind? And Jesus immediately said, neither. This is for this person to display the glory of God in his life. So that could be the case. But on the other hand, there are times, and the text is saying it, where people actually are being chastened by God even to death in this life. Because they're sinning. And God is rooting that out. And sometimes I think the Lord actually takes people home early just to stop the sin. It's, it's my son. It's my daughter. I want them to stop sinning. They're not repenting. I'm chastening them. So I'm taking them home to be with me now. And then things are made right there for sure. I think that happens. Look at, look at 1 Corinthians 11, verse 30. This is the classic communion passage uh, where... People in the church were blaspheming the Lord. They were taking the Lord's Supper and using the wine to get drunk and sort of making the love feast into a party. And God said, enough is enough. And Paul warned the church at Corinth and said, verse 28, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight: Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why I always warn us when we are at the Lord's table to do business with the Lord and make sure we're right and clean before him because we don't want to be under his chastening hand. But look at this, verse 30, that is why many of you are weak. Now, let me stop you there. James 5, 14, that's the same word for sick in verse 14. That's why many of you are sick or that's why you're weak and ill. And look at this, and some have died, verse Uh, verse 30. Some have died because of this. That word is camno. That's the same word that James uses in James 5, 15. That's the deathbed word. Some have died because they blasphemed God. And perhaps this links with James, I mean, 1 John 5, where John talks about the sin that leads to death. It's where God just takes somebody home early. Remember the story of David where he lied and committed adultery, covered his tracks by committing murder, basically broke all ten commandments in one fell swoop. You remember that? Well, in Psalm 32, David talks about as a testimony about the years of anguish and suffering that he went through because of his unrepentant state. And he said that my body is crying out like a wild animal and how it was sapped, all his energy was gone and it was like he was out in a desert fever heat. That's how it is with unconfessed sin and that is the chastening hand of God. But when he confessed his sin and repented, the weight of sin was lifted off his shoulders. And perhaps that's what James is talking about here, saying, look, there are going to be times where you are squeezed and you're faced with your own mortality and you just confess and you say, enough is enough, I'm coming out with it. God, forgive me. And so healing could come in this life, but it's for sure guaranteed in the life to come because your faith is on display and you are affirmed as the real thing. I mean, confessing your sin, it doesn't earn your way to heaven. Don't misunderstand me. It just affirms that you are alive spiritually in this moment. It doesn't earn it. It's not like I can confess my way to heaven. That's not the evangelical Christianity of the Bible. If you're trying to earn your way to heaven, that's not Christianity. 
Christianity is one where the real thing, when you're squeezed, real faith will come out. And part of what comes out of a person when they're squeezed is genuine confession. Saying what God already knows to be true about you. You're just real in that moment. And then there's affirmation again. We'll look at the rest of this text next time. Um, Just one other point here. If you're right with God, you embrace the healing promise. If you've confessed and you've dealt with it, and you're sitting there and you're not harboring sin in your life, but you are being prayed for, what you have to do, beloved, is embrace the healing promise. Perhaps you're sitting there and you're going, look, I'm not at death's door, but I do have a, an illness. I have a cancer that perhaps will one day win. Or I have something that, that is harming me. Something that could abbreviate my life. You know what? If you're right with God, by the grace of God, through the cross of God, you just embrace the healing promise. How do you, how do you lift out of the depression of thinking, you know, I shouldn't, have, I shouldn't have this illness in my life. What did I do? I don't deserve this, right? How did I earn this life? You know, this disease or this sickness. Why isn't it leaving me? Well, if your heart is right with God, then you're in the best situation because you've got hope for ultimate healing. And you're supposed to embrace that promise. That's what lifts you through your life of suffering and struggle. That's how you endure through. And perhaps the Lord will heal you this side of eternity, but for sure in the life to come. All right, here's a few take-home points. A few thoughts of application. Number one, just three this morning. Number one, you're not called to bear life and death trials alone. Life and death trials. If you think that Christianity is so low, you are selling your spirituality short. You're supposed to be open with other people about what's going wrong in your life so that you don't have to bear it alone. That is my encouragement to you. That is why you go to a Bible study. Do you go to to learn the Word of God? Yes. But you go to Bible study so somebody says, how are you doing? And you have to answer them. And if you're honest, you'll say, not very well because dot, dot, dot. And then off we go and you're bearing one another's burdens, fulfilling the law of Christ, Galatians chapter 6. Right? And if you don't bear it alone in the, in the lesser times, then you won't have to bear it alone in the greater times. Number two, facing your own mortality begs you to know the state of your own soul. These crossroads moments where you don't know if you're going to make it or not, it makes you think hard about the state of your own soul. Let me ask you this. When's the last time you've visited somebody in need? Somebody who is facing their own mortality. Because when you do, you should go to them with counsel, with scripture, with encouragement. Where you ask them, how are you doing spiritually? I mean, that is a loving question. You can say, well, that sounds like, you know, Bildad, Eliphaz, and Zophar. There we go. You know, you don't want to do that. Don't be Job's counselors. But you can say, look, you know, how's it going spiritually? Is there anything I can pray for you about? I want to love you through this. Talk about the gospel. That's what a person needs in that moment. All right, number three. Exercising faith is the only, I'm adding the word only, is the only way you experience comfort intended by God's healing promise. You know why? Because faith sees something that's more than just now. 
faith. Some of the happiest people I've ever met are people who are in a shut-in situation. I used to do shut-in ministry where I'd bring communion to people and uh, they could barely get themselves ready for the visit of the pastor to come by and I'd show up with communion and they'd run out and they'd grab their list of paper about all the things they'd been praying for me about. I didn't even know who they were. Well, you know, pastor, I, I care about the church. I care about you and I'm just praying for you. And they know things about my life. That's a busy, exercised faith. It's not a depressed person. That's a joyful person that gets it. They're throwing the old tent off and they're going home. That's where we all want to be. That's what James calls us to be like, people who are alive spiritually. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time in your word, and we do pray that, God, your word would do its work in our lives of preparation, because we know trials are coming. We know we're going to be in this situation, either praying for someone or calling for prayer in our own lives. And I pray, God, that the text has done its work and is doing its work to make us ready for that. Lord, thank you for the promise that of the resurrection, that we will be made whole. And Lord, I know that many of us have lost loved ones or have people who are struggling or, or are struggling ourselves. And I pray, God, that we would renew our thinking afresh in terms of what you have promised for us in glory. We thank you for the healing power that does happen this side of eternity. And we do pray for that. We pray even for Rosemary Masters. We do pray she would be healed miraculously. Lord, that it would be inexplicable healing that that would confound the doctors to the glory of God and Lord that would be a gospel witness around Providence Hospital that she would be raised up we pray that for others who are hurting in our body who need healing we pray God that you would bring healing power in a divine supernatural way even today and God bolster faith all around if people are here who don't yet know you I pray you'd call them to yourself through the word In Jesus' name we pray, amen.